I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. I am Pastor Mike Winger, and we're going to do Q&A today, and it's going to be a very short stream compared to the length I normally go. But before we get into that, while you guys are asking your questions and we're sort of gathering those questions for the uh, for the discussion today, um, I want to offer you an encouragement, just a, a, a quick word of encouragement I hope for you, which is to remind you um, that in Christ you are saved by grace. And that is a powerful thing. It's powerful because it reaches into our insecurities and it answers them. It reaches into our past and our guilt and our shame and it resolves it. It's powerful because it is the thing that sustains you day to day. It is the grace of Jesus Christ. It is not by your works of righteousness, but by his grace alone. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is the rest that Christ gives us that we can walk in and we can sit in really as we uh, come to know him and come to know his kindness and the free gift of salvation. Just remember for a minute that you don't do anything to earn your salvation. Nothing. He earns it entirely and completely, and he secures it because he ever lives to intercede for us, which means he's there being the bridge builder, the constant, you know, bridge that exists between me and God is Jesus. And if I'm in Christ, I'm secure. Uh, Man, it's just an encouragement to me, uh, to my heart. Um, So here's what we're doing today. Um, And I have a couple announcements real quick before we get started with the questions. Um, So... Uh, put your questions in the live chat if, if you're if you're watching live. If not, you can actually um, uh, you can scroll down and look at the um, the video description or the first comment on the video. And shortly after this video, we'll put up a little video map that will tell you like at what point in the video we're answering different questions. So you could look at that and click around or see if you, you know what you want to watch. I just want to make this accessible and usable to you. I'm not trying to bait you to watch things you don't feel like watching. Um, I don't appreciate that very much. So. Um, so I don't do it to others, but uh, here's the deal. For the next two weeks, that is next Tuesday and the following Tuesday, I will not be doing a live stream. And that's because me and my wife have recently celebrated our 10 year anniversary, but we didn't really celebrate it all that much. Um, we're actually planning on heading out and this is our big 10 year celebration. We've been waiting for this for a long time and we're going on a little cruise. And so we have a, a local cruise that's gonna have us gone most of next week and although I'll be home uh, on the 27th, I don't think I'll be able to do a live stream that day. I have so many things I'm prepping for and preparing for, which is why I have a, a shorter stream today. There's a lot of more more stuff and I think important stuff coming down the uh, the grapevine <clears throat> for this ministry and for this YouTube channel and podcast. Or maybe you're watching on the Bible Thinker app. And by the way, hi, hello, Bible Thinker app people. And you can find the Bible Thinker app in your app store. Um, just search for my name, Mike Winger, or Bible Thinker, one word, and you should find it just fine. Uh, we're still working on that to try to improve it if you found any glitches, and that's all the announcements I've got. So if you guys could send me those questions, um, or I'll stall <clears throat> as I'm waiting for those questions to come through. Good timing, Mr. A.J. Bernard. How do you have a million questions already? Um, some some kind of super skills at getting questions. All right, uh, from Marina Gromov, <clears throat> the question is, hello, Mike. Let's see. Oops. And my phone just skipped right to a message from like three years ago. All right. From Marina Gromov. Hello, Mike. Um, a lot of people think that the, that the Bible's not clear about divorce and remarriage. Are um, are there some 
or are there some gray areas? What do you think about this topic? Marina, I think that um, that's a topic I want to I want to dedicate a whole video to one of these days. And I don't feel good about trying to answer it in a tiny snippet when um, <clears throat> what, what I would say is this. We feel the tension and I'll give some advice here. We feel the tension of the reality that we want to hold fast to God's word. And marriage is this amazing thing that Jesus speaks very highly of, right? And he seems to have really strong dismissals of a lot of the reasons people would give for divorce. Um, he does offer at least one exception to the rule, so to speak, um, about infidelity. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, but, but... There's um, a lot of other content we want to put it all, at least my goal is to bring it all together in the scripture. And, and here's what happens. We have the, the standards of scripture and then they run face first into the reality of people's broken lives. And sometimes it's trying to figure out how these two things go together. And that's where the real battle is on the topic of, I think, marriage in the Bible. Where do we take these, these good and solid and, and you know right standards of scripture we need to hold up and deal with the brokenness of people's lives? And so I think that's the real challenge. It's not only a doctrinal question, it's a pastoral question. And I want to tackle it one of these days. It's on my list. As a youth pastor, I didn't, you know, for years, I didn't co cover this topic much. I mean, I didn't really have any, you know, youth getting divorced that I can think of. Um, so, the, you know, the issue didn't really come up that much. Uh, but I'm realizing now with this online ministry, I, I want to I have a video that handles it theologically well and pastorally well as well. And that would be swell. Um, okay, I'm going to move forward to the next question. Um, oh, I'll add one tip though. Maybe you guys out there, you've heard pastors teach on the topic of divorce and you know they're teaching and you're basing your major life decisions based on that guy's thing he said. My encouragement is know the scriptures, not what your pastor said on this topic because it's one that um, you're accountable to God for. And so you have to be very careful and thoughtful about it. Don't just find a guy or girl and take their word for it. Make sure that you have the actual text of scripture. So my counsel to people when I when I'm not I don't have a lot of time to unpack it is go and look up all the marriage passages that you can find in the Bible and you can easily easily use Google to find those passages. Read through them, think through them, pray through them, be thoughtful about it, don't rush to conclusions, but let that guide and direct you. Um, Anna Boshir <clears throat> says, my fellowship did a salvation prayer, which didn't involve any confessing or repenting, just believing. Does this mean whoever was praying it is not saved? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think my short answer is, is no. I, I definitely don't think so, Anna. Um, or Anna. Sorry, I don't know uh, which one that is. But <clears throat> what I would say is this. Um, there are times in scripture where people are told to just believe. And there are times in scripture where they're told repent and believe. I think that genuine faith comes with repentance, that this is like an aspect of faith because in faith, I'm turning toward God and in repentance, I'm turning away from sin. Like sin's back here, I'm turning away from that and I'm turning towards God. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same kind of coin is, is how I would put it. So that if they had that work of the spirit in their life, if there was like a, a, a genuine embracing of Christ, then there would be an automatic sort of turning from sin. However... However, I'll tell you guys a story. This happened at a, at a camp we were at where um, kind of the, the, the bad version of this happened. And the, these, this band was up on stage and they were just doing all kinds of stuff to get the kids really active and involved. And, um, 
And they offered for people to come forward and they made a very emotive appeal, very strong emotional appeal for students to come forward. But they didn't make clear like the message of the cross, right? The message of of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that, that he dies for your sin, you know. They didn't make clear anything about repentance. In fact, in their in their appeal for people to come forward, what I heard was them saying, if you just feel like you should come forward, if you just feel like you need to come forward, then I want you to come forward now. We're going to pray for you. And then they went forward and prayed. And he prayed for like a couple groups of people. You may predict what he did, right? He said, hey, um, you know, we pray, we're praying, you know, for those who need to return to the Lord. And they're backslidden Christians and they need to be on fire. And we're praying for those who are coming to God for the first time. And that God, you bless them and fill them and, and all this stuff. <clears throat> well, the beautiful thing about camp is the kids, we go back to the cabin and we sit as, with the leaders of the students and just talk about the day, talk about what they just heard. And I saw one of my students who, that was his first time at camp. He hadn't been to church much at all. And he, um, he, had, he had gone forward. And so I asked him, why did you go forward? Because I was concerned, what message did he hear? And, and he said, um, I don't know. I just felt like I should. And I said, okay, well, you know, can I talk to you about what it means to, to know Christ, to follow Christ? And I talked to him very briefly about it. And the second I said the part about, you know, turning from a life of living our own thing, a, a life of just living sinful ways, however we want, so that we can follow Christ, he immediately stopped me mid-sentence and said, oh, I don't know about that. And this was confirmation of what I suspected, that the, that the leaders, they were, honestly, the guys leading the band were, from my perception, probably just spiritually immature guys looking for a number that they could put on their report when they got back home about how many kids came forward that day at camp. Um, and I, I, uh, I grieve that that's what I think it was, but, <clears throat> but that's what it seemed like to me. But he says, I'm not interested in that. And that's the danger, right? Because, you know, there could be that outreach. And because um, maybe there isn't the awareness that believing in Jesus means trusting in Christ, means turning to Christ, means um, I'm, I'm turning away from that life of rebellion against God and towards Christ. It, like, if I don't know any of that, I might be rejecting Jesus, thinking I'm accepting Jesus. And so if we preach the gospel in a way that it makes it so muddy that some people get saved and others think they're saved and none of them really knows exactly the details of the message, um, then we might be causing a problem, uh, potentially to get more hands raised. Because um, you know what? Being a leader, being a, a teacher, pastor at a camp, you know, you want more people raising those hands. You want that outward confirmation of the, that the message you're sending is landing, so to speak, and you can perhaps add more or I should say, take away some of the clarity of the gospel and add more reasons to raise their hands so you can get a bigger response. And um, I think that's just, we got to think of a better way to do it than that. Um, so my, my short answer after a long one there is, um, it doesn't mean whoever prayed was not saved. It doesn't mean that. But maybe if you know somebody who prayed, follow up with them, you know, see if you can ask him like, what, you know, what, what do you, uh, what did you mean? What just happened right now? What do you think just happened? Like, let's talk about it. Speak in a hopeful way, you know, but draw it out of them and then maybe disciple them, maybe even lead them to Christ um, if they did not in fact understand the gospel. Um, but I do think that, you know, the Lord works in people's lives in all sorts of different ways. And some people come to Jesus and they really understand very little, but they still really came to Jesus. So I don't, I don't want to be too quick to judge uh, in that regard. Um, Decided Scroll has a question. <clears throat> it says, could you explain your non-Calvinism view of Isaiah 63, 17? Um, let me see. I'll, I'll pull up the text. 
Okay. Um, I'll bring it for you guys too. There you go. So Isaiah 63, 17 says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your, of your heritage. Um, so I actually have a, a video that gives a detailed explanation and s scriptural survey of the topic of why God hardens hearts. I think that's the title of the video, Why God Hardens Hearts, where I do like a careful teaching through this issue. It's part of my Romans series, actually. I, I went into that after doing with a lot of Romans 9. I got to the part about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and did a whole thing on the topic. So there's that, Why, why God Hardens Hearts. Um, and uh, Leighton Flowers really liked it. And so uh, some of you are going to hate that and some of you are going to like that. <laughs> and so, um, so I'd recommend you check that out. But for this verse right here, I will just say, um, I affirm God's sovereignty. I affirm that, that God does in fact harden hearts, but that he does so judicially. And by the fact that I affirm both of those things doesn't mean I can't also affirm that people have free will and that their decisions also contributed to their hardening of hearts. And that's consistent in the text of scripture. They're hardened as a result of their sin. Uh, look at Romans 1. It talks about th they made choices to not retain God's knowledge, so then they were hardened as a result. So I see hardening as an act of judgment. And verse 17 here seems consistent with that. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we, we, not, we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Um, but looking at the context of Isaiah as a whole, they're constantly rebelling. And God's like, you know, come and reason together with me. Like, you know, why will you not turn from your wicked ways? And so he's, he's throughout Isaiah, God's appealing to them. And then yet they will be hardened because of their rejection of his appeals. Um, so we see God's sovereign in the hardening, but man's free will still intact. I don't see any, any issue with that. I see two agents acting, <clears throat> um, ultimately God in control of the results. But here's a question for the Calvinist on the topic of God hardening. So the, the Calvinist would, would have to hold, I think, right, that um, mankind is, is born, born in a state of sinfulness such that um, they, they not only will not, but they cannot will, they cannot will to say yes to God in any fashion, right? In any salvific fashion. They can't say, I, oh, I want that gospel. They don't want it. They hate it. So why then does God harden them? Because I think the idea of God hardening hearts actually presents a bigger objection to Calvinism than it does to any other view. If God hardens hearts, then that means they weren't as hard as they could be already, which seems to say that the particular understanding of total depravity we have in Calvinism doesn't seem consistent with the idea that God's judicially hardening that guy's heart. Oh yeah, you're going to be even harder now. Wait a minute, I'm already totally hard, totally depraved. Um, so that seems inconsistent with Calvinism. Um, I've actually asked this of, of Calvinists, like what is, what is judicial hardening on a Calvinist worldview? Um, what does it do? How does it work in that worldview? Everyone's already that hard. I don't understand. So I haven't heard a good answer for that. Otherwise, I would share with you what that was. But maybe you could put it in the comments below if you're a Calvinist or in the live chat. I'd be happy to consider it. Um, Elizabeth has a question. Uh, what does it mean to pray in the spirit? I understood my pastor saying that it means praying in tongues. And he said we can all pray in tongues. Thoughts? Those are a few different questions there. Um, let, me, let me bring up a text real quick. I'm just finding the text. I don't have every verse memorized. Um, 
So uh, I don't have most verses memorized. Uh, so in uh, in Ephesians chapter six verse eighteen, we have this phrase: praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. In the spirit. Uh, now in this context, this is like our constant mode of prayer. When I'm when I'm praying, I'm always praying in the spirit. I'm watchful to sin with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me. So these are, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about praying in the spirit as well. But but I think in that context, he's using it in reference to tongues specifically. However, in Ephesians, the phrase praying in the spirit is being used in reference to not tongues, but like prayers I'm cognizant of, prayers I'm aware of. How do I know that? Well, he says praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. And he gives him a specific prayer request. And for me, verse 19. So pray for me. Well, if you're speaking in tongues, you're not choosing what to pray for, are you? You know, you're, you're not you're not deciding what this is going to, the content of this prayer will be. That would be, if it's legitimate tongues, it would be the Lord. Well, here, praying in the spirit is not tongues. It's, it's um, in other words, I'm, I am um, in right relationship with God. I am not in the flesh. I'm engaging in prayer and it's a spiritual exercise. And so I'm to remind myself that as I pray, I'm communing with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So that's the general understanding of praying in the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and then there's uh, the the other one, which is a, a more technical use in 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about praying in the Spirit as being, I think, a synonym for praying in tongues. Same phrase used in two different ways in two different places. There's my short answer. Oh yeah, and um, can we all pray in tongues? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think that there's a scripture that says that all can. I know lots of guys that tell me that everybody can. I don't. I don't. Where's the verse? Uh, where's the scripture that says all? Everyone has the ability to pray in tongues. And what's scary is when when people take that doctrine and they teach. And if you don't pray in tongues, you're not even saved. And that is a um, incredibly destructive uh, and unfortunate doctrine that is not found in scripture. And I would. I would happily take to task someone who says it is. Um, John David has a question. Does Hebrews 12.2 teach irresistible grace? Let's see. Good variety of questions today. Here we got all kinds of stuff. Let me bring it up on your screen as well. Hebrews 12.2, that we are looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Um, okay, so I think that this depends when we say, does it teach irresistible grace? I think for those who are not Calvinists, right? You're like, what? How does it even relate? I think it's this phrase, our faith. And forgive me if I'm misunderstanding the Calvinist perspective here. But um, but it might be the, the idea that Jesus, he's the author and finisher of our faith. So the fact that I believe was authored, was was begun and finished by Christ. So my action of faith, my position of faith in Christ, that was created by him. So if he gave me faith, if he sort of made me have faith, well, then that's irresistible grace. The ability, the inability to, um, to say no to God, because that's the two sides of the coin of total depravity. One, one is you can't say yes to God, but after you're regenerated, then you can't say no to God. And so you have irresistible grace. Um, so that's why the Calvinists say regeneration comes before faith. That's like a key thing. If you don't understand Calvinism, ponder that for a minute. They think that you are regenerated and it's still, they're still Christians. This is, this is an in-house discussion, but they're going to say you are regenerated. You're born again. Then as a result of being born again, you have faith. Um, even if it happens at the same time, it happens as a result of regeneration, um, as opposed to regeneration happening as a result of faith. 
So here's where I would disagree. Um, I think our faith in this context is referring to he is the author and finisher of those things that we believe. Uh, not just the fact that I believe, but the things I believe. The, the validity of my faith. The fact that my faith in Jesus is effective is because Jesus authored and finished the things that I'm believing in. And I think the example is here in this verse. Looking at a Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and then it tells you what it's talking about. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the one who endured those things, and he's done. He sat down, meaning he finished those things as well. The way Jesus authored and finished my faith, I think, in Hebrews 12 too, is that Jesus um, planned out and then accomplished my salvation. Right? His, his behavior on earth, enduring the cross, right? Rising from the dead. Then he sat down because he's all done. So that would, that would refer to our, our faith as in those things we believe, not each individual person's choice to believe. So that'd be my perspective on Hebrews. Let me look at another question here. Um, Catherine uh, Bars says, Hi, Mike, what is your opinion on birth control usage within a marriage? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of birth control and some of them are all called birth control. Okay, let me, let me say this. If, it's, if, it's, uh, if it controls conception, I don't see it as committing any kind of abortion. However, if it prevents, I mean, controls conception as in it, it, it does something into the human body so that conception never takes place, meaning that sperm and egg never come together in a successful way. However, other kinds of birth control, they allow conception to take place and then they cause the uh, fertilized egg, this new human, to be starved out and to die or for the the the, uh, the new baby to be rejected somehow by the mother. And so that kind of thing, that's abortion. And so I'm going to say that that's wrong. The other one where you just prevent conception, I do not have a strong scriptural objection to that. Um, and I I'm personally think that those who say, well, you have to be fruitful and multiply, I think you're taking that text too far. Because then you're going to also have to say that every time a husband and wife know that the wife is fertile and they don't be together during that time, that they're rebelling against God. Because just by not being together that day, just which we call family planning, just by not doing that, they're preventing a potential child. Yeah, but they're not killing an actual child, right? There's a difference between preventing a potential child and killing an actual child. Or every, every person who stays single and doesn't get married, you're single and you're in your 40s, I'll be like, well, you had 20 years of childbearing that you could have been engaging in and you rejected that to be single. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to say you're rebelling against God too. And so I think, no, no, we should draw the line at um, before conception, th this is a decision each person makes. After conception, now there's a new living human being uh, with his own DNA that, or her own DNA that is progressing quickly into, um, into eventually be being independent of the mom. And so then you, you can't do anything because that's murder um, in the real sense of the word. Like, I don't see any logic way, logical way around that. So there's that, that question. Um, <clears throat> number seven, Flora says, In Matthew 25, the ten virgin, uh, virgins teachers say the oil is the Holy Spirit, but how can you run out or get more of the Holy Spirit, especially if you're not saved? It's a good question. I, I know in Scripture... 
this parable of the of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. I know in scripture that the Holy Spirit is connected to the concept of oil. We get this in Zechariah. Um, we, we, we see that connection that's happening there. I'm not sure that I would draw too much of a connection to the Holy Spirit in the parable of the virgins. So I don't know that I can defend that because I don't know that I would take that position. Partially because of the same issue you have, right? There, there is running out and all that. So yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question, Flora. So I'm sorry I'm not able to be more help for you. Perhaps we shouldn't draw that parallel so strongly that it becomes a problem. Uh, Tara has a question, Tara Balvin. I work with a nonprofit whose core value is hearing God's voice and everything we must, everything we do must be based on a specific word from the Lord. I'm struggling with whether this is biblical and how God speaks to us. Tara, I totally understand why you're struggling. And I'll, um, I'll say this. I love the idea of hearing God's voice. However, I don't think that's how he works. I don't think it's, and I, and I think I have a whole book of the Bible based on the idea that that's not how it works. Ask yourself this. If God was to speak to us every time we do stuff, every decision we make, every time we do things, and he's always going to guide our actions, go left here, go right here, get this job, not that job, buy this house, not that house, um, date this person, not that person. If God's always going to lead us in those things, why on earth does the book of Proverbs even exist? Think about this for a second, because it took me a while for this to sink in. I was thinking about Proverbs, and I was like, Proverbs is all about making wise choices. It's about learning to have skill in evaluating your life circumstances and to make godly, wise choices based upon the principles we're learning in Proverbs. Yet that's unnecessary if I have God leading me every step of the way. So, and, and, and this is a good thing. Because a people who make thoughtful, wise choices are a wise people. A people who are told what to do every single step of the way are a dependent people. That's a good thing. But they're not really growing in wisdom, are they? Because wisdom is that skill at living life and having discernment and scenarios and choosing what to do. My encouragement is um, we are to make wise choices. Now, we don't stop praying. I don't, I don't stop praying for God to give, give me wisdom and direct my life, but I don't expect every decision to be led of the Lord. And part of that's a fear, right? Because I'm like, but if I can say it's led of God, then I know I'll have success in this path in my life. And that creates a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of disappointment in the future, because even paths God does lead you on often aren't the kind of success you were thinking they were going to be. And it can lead us to this thing where instead of looking to the principles of God's word to guide and direct my life on a daily basis, instead of doing that, I'm like looking to like vague confirmations in my life, right? Instead, I'm like, oh, um, you know, it was cold today and that means this, or I heard the birds singing and that means this, or, um, or, you know, the Bible verse that popped up in my app was this verse today. And it has nothing to do with the context of the verse, but I was, but it means this for me. And I'm not saying that can never be the Lord, but it certainly isn't the standard way in which God is communicating to us. The normal way God communicates to us is through the reading and studying of his scriptures, right? Through the word of God. And then he equips us to make choices and be thoughtful, godly, wise people. We filter everything through prayer. I do, before I do those decisions, you know, make those make those choices. I say, God, is this, you know, should I do this? Give me wisdom here. Lead and direct me. And sometimes in my personal life, sometimes I really feel like I have the Lord guiding me. Not an audible voice, but I felt like 
really convinced this is the Lord guiding me in this. I still hold out that maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm mistaken here, but I think that this is the Lord. In my experience, this is fairly rare. And more often, I'm making choices based upon the word of God and uh, the wisdom that the Lord has, has taught me and the goals and the, the agendas he's given me. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There you go. There's your priorities. Now go make choices you know, <laughs> that, uh, that, that help you in that path. So Tara, I get it. And, and you may not be able to help the people in your environment do this. But one thing you might do, if you think you hear God's voice all the time, and you think God's directing you every day, all the time, start writing down your track record of whether or not those things were of the Lord. And don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Because if you're wrong, then you're pretending that your voice, your internal voice, is God's voice. And the only way to confirm it would be to examine that track record, confirm it with the testing of what scripture says. And then you could be more grounded because um, the concern is that we would, uh, we would read, read, read God's voice into our voice. And that can be a problem. May God give you grace and wisdom to, to talk to the probably wonderful believers who, um, who may have this view a little bit weird. Connor8232 says, do you have any opinions on preterism? Would you ever do a study on eschatology? I do have a couple videos on eschatology on my YouTube channel. Um, if you just search Mike Winger eschatology, that's E-S-C-H-A-T-A-L-O-G-Y for anybody who didn't know. Um, on preterism, I have a short debate on preterism on another YouTube channel. So if you just look up Mike Winger preterism debate, you should find it right up right there. And we talk a little bit about it. it. We didn't get into it nearly as much as I'd hoped we would. Um, but yeah, my view of preterism is I'm not a preterist. I don't think that it's right. I don't think it's true. Um, partial or full preterism. There's my short answer. And I'll consider doing more eschatology stuff in the future, but it's not close to my heart, to be totally honest. I have, I have this big list of really, to me, important issues. And I want to get to these things. And it's going to take a long time to get through the stuff I've got planned. And uh, eschatology is pretty low on the list because I consider it like... Um, less important, uh, to be honest, than some of the other things I'm covering. Uh, Joshua Bader says, uh, don't we live by breath, by breath life, according to Genesis 2, 7, um, and he quotes a few other verses, and therefore justifies some abortion. Okay, so Josh is saying, um, if, if our life is in the breath, then doesn't it mean you can kill babies who aren't breathing, right? Because they're, if, at least you know, they're not breathing air. And so then they're not technically alive. On the surface of it, I'll say um, two things. One, to, to, to say that life is in our breath um, is a stretch by even the verses I think that are being quoted here. Genesis 2-7, you know, God made Adam out of the ground and breathed life into him, right? But we're, we're saying he gave him, he did more than breath. He gave him, like, he was not alive. He was a, a body that was not alive, and God breathed life into him. So Adam's not like a baby, right? He's, he's an, uh, a lifeless form who was then given life. His heart wasn't beating. His lungs weren't moving amniotic fluid in and out. Like, none of this stuff's going on. There's no, um, uh, your uh, metabolism, his metabolism was not going. His stomach wasn't doing anything. Like, none of that was happening. His brain wasn't functioning. So, yeah, when God breathed, yeah, Adam came to life. Before that, he wasn't alive. But that's Adam, and that's not babies because they're not made the same way. Um, now, some would say, I think Leviticus 17.11 is the verse that's about blood. Um, uh, let's look it up. Yeah, for the life is in the blood. 
Um, life is in the blood. Um, it, it's talking about an offering. So when you present an offering, the blood represents the life of the animal. This is not to say that before a baby has proper blood, it's not really alive. Um, to me, this is, in one sense, stretching the text way beyond what it means. Like, certainly the Hebrew reader is not thinking, like, that means that babies, until they actually have proper blood and heartbeat, you know, it actually happens pretty quick in the womb, I believe, um, that until that happens, you know, you could kill them. And it's not killing because they're not really alive. Like, this is, it's embarrassingly bad Bible study, in my opinion. Um, that would be my response, is this is a terrible Bible study. And if you're going to do it, then which one is it? Is it life or breath? Is it blood or breath? Which one's the one? Anyhow. Um, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's no biblical justification for abortion. Uh, no, there's no justification for it, right? Unless you have two people that are both going to die and you can have one die and not the other. So in which case you're saving one life or you're losing two lives. Like th these are the options. That's the only time that I can see where abortion would be grudgingly, terribly, horribly the last option available. Uh, but what we have in our culture is just mass, mass, uh, killing of the preborn by their parents and doctors working together it's one of the worst things that goes on in the world next to perhaps the preaching of false gospel terrible stuff we should be in arms over it i don't mean guns i mean we should be up and active trying to undermine and um, ruin this horrible horrible practice by changing the hearts and minds of people by passing legislation by doing whatever we can i don't i mean anything that we can do that's godly and um, that we should do to, to help stop this thing. Um, our Wholesome Home has a question. We're going to end real soon here because I have to get back to my prep for other stuff I've got coming up. I'll announce more about that later. But um, Our Wholesome Home says, uh, where was Jesus seated before he was at the right hand of the Father? Uh, trying to envision in my head. Um, actually, Our Wholesome Home, I would say that the idea of Jesus being seated at the Father's hand is, um, is, is okay, think of it this way. Um, in eternity past, Christ occupies this place with the Father. He's, he's the eternal Son. He's with the Father. Perhaps we could envision him seated at the Father's right hand at this point, at least in, picture, in pictorial terms. And that may be the, the usage of the term in the New Testament as well. Um, so he's seated there. Now, when he comes in human form, he's not seated at the right hand of the Father. He's a, he's a baby. Right? And then he grows into a man and he suffers and he dies and he's in this state of humiliation. He rises from the dead and then he's ascending into heaven and he's received into heaven. And now because his job is done, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And Hebrews makes a big deal about this. It says the fact that Jesus is seated is symbolic of the fact that he's done. The fact that he's seated at the right hand of God is representative of the fact that he is exalted above all creation because he is uh, eternally, you know, uh, God. He is God the Son. And so we have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father to communicate those two, treat, two truths. One, the finished work of Christ, because you don't sit when you're not done. And the priest, for instance, in the temple, this is what Hebrews says, the priest in the temple could not ever sit. There were no chairs because their work wasn't done. And so Jesus sits because he's finished. And then he's at the hand of the Father because of his, his place um, uh, in, the, in the triune, you know, in the triune nature of God. So that's, that's how I would picture this thing. As far as localities and things like that, I don't know. Um, I don't know personally how to, res how to put all that together. And so maybe someone else does. I'm sure somebody does. But it's not me. 
Um, okay, I've I've kind of like got to stop because I want to keep going. I'm really enjoying actually the, the Q and A today. It's been a, really fun and good Q and A. But I've got to stop because I have tons of stuff I'm doing. So I'll tell you what I'm doing. Here's the project we're working on. Um, in a couple of days, I'm heading over heading over to Living Waters, their office, and we're going to try and record, um, assuming everything works out, a bunch of videos about answering questions um, posed by and toward Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I'm prepping a bunch of questions to answer in a, like a half day of video recording that we're going to do there. And I should be able to produce some of that content and put it up on my channel. I'm not sure how much will go up on my channel. It will go up also in Living Waters. They have some like um, training videos and teaching videos that they're going to be putting this content in. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to be get to be one of the one of the voices in that to try to help uh, educate and, you know, equip people. But I know that like uh, Greg Kokel is going to be in it and uh, James White is in it. And that's how I met him because I went over there and visited when he was doing his recordings. And some other guys, uh, Jay Warner Wallace is going to be in it and some other guys too. So I'm just like really privileged that I get to be uh, part of it and looking forward to doing that. We'll hope, hopefully be able to share um, a good chunk of those videos with you guys. That's the plan. I've been told I can actually put them on my YouTube channel um, slowly, you know, like one a week or something like that. So I'm going to be preparing a ton of content for you. However... I will be gone all next week and then uh, no live stream the following Tuesday. So thank you guys so much for being here. Hey, the Bible Thinker app is doing great. It's I don't know how many downloads it has, but as of like two days ago, I think it had over 3,000 downloads. We're still working to improve it. Little glitches. Now that so many people are using it, we're getting reports of like ways to make it better. So um, the developer team's working on that, trying to make that app more usable. And I so appreciate, uh, so appreciate it. that this has been sponsored by a Christian businessman who just wanted to help spread the, the message of the ministry here, uh, the message of the Bible and of Christ and of the truth of Christianity. Um, it's been pretty exciting stuff. So, uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's all I got to say. So I'm just going to say, Lord bless you guys. Um, and keep your heart focused on the Lord. I encourage you. This 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 group, I, I, I imagine the community that comes around this content, a lot of us are more like intellectual heady about scripture. But keep the heart of it too. Your heart yielded and submitted to and trusting in God. Nothing will ever replace this this issue or fix that issue. Keep your heart centered and trusting in Christ. Go spend some time just worshiping him. Be in fellowship. Be, uh, be in prayer. And push out of your lives those sort of unspiritual things that seem to drain your spiritual battery. You know, if you can. Uh, yeah, just, just some tips and advice off the top of my head. God bless y'all. Have a wonderful, wonderful day and keep thinking biblically.